Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Lance Corporal William Windsor of the Welsh Guards 1st Battalion and together we're going to be discussing the funny side of psychology. I think they call him William Wales. Um, really? Do you know Do you know who I am? <laughs> do I know who one is? I don't know, I assumed you were going for Prince William. Um, no. Okay, someone called William Windsor sounds like Prince William. Who's Lance let, let Corporal... Me... Let me give you a clue. He's also known as Billy. Um, no, that doesn't help me. <laughs> William Windsor, also known as Billy, is a goat who served as a lance corporal in the 1st Battalion, the Royal Welsh. Of course. <laughs> he served as a lance corporal from 2001 until 2009, except for a three-month period in 2006 where he was demoted to a fusilier after inappropriate behaviour during the Queen's official birthday. <laughs> Uh, I see Shall that I read on? <laughs> Only if you're going to carry on being in character as this goat for the whole show. <laughs> I think I, I, I feel the need to convey this. So uh, under the on the Wikipedia page under the heading temporary demotion, uh, <laughs> 16th of June a parade was held to celebrate Queen Elizabeth's birthday. Um, invited dignitaries included the ambassadors of Spain, the Netherlands and Sweden and the Argentine commander of the United Nations forces on Cyprus Uh, the deployment to to Cyprus with the 1st Battalion was Billy's first overseas posting and despite being ordered to keep in line he refused to obey, he failed to keep in step and he tried to headbutt a drummer (laughs) the goat major was unable to keep him under control Billy was charged with unacceptable behaviour, lack of decorum, and di- disobeying a direct order, and had to appear before his commanding officer. Ah, uh, he was demoted to fusilier, and that meant that uh, other fusiliers in the regiment no longer had to stand to attention when Billy walked past. Right. Um, that is interesting, and it's very on topic, so I commend I you know. for that. I know! I know. Anyway, William Windsor is a goat read about it and so would you like to explain the topic this week as you've so adroitly uh, introduced it in the metaphorical sense would you like to tell the people what it actually is well tim william windsor is a goat who behaves in many ways like a human in that he holds rank in the british army and this week's topic is animals behaving like humans yes i was going for animals behaving manly to go and play on the men behaving badly thing but i think it's a bit of a stretch um you know <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, we maybe 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 we'll come maybe we'll circle back to that a little bit later, but not in a nice way. Oh right, okay. Feedback, go. Um, so I have some feedback from uh, Kieran on our previous episode. Uh, he said uh, you didn't mention one of my favourite methods of improving cognition. The best book I've read all year is Refactor Your Wetware, um, and we'll put a link to that, a guide for IT Burks such as myself to take advantage of your brain systems to improve your own learning and thinking skills. And essentially about 50% of it boils down to if you have an understanding of how your brain works, you can learn better, correct unconscious biases and so on. Or, to put it in another form, listening to Psychomedia helps you be a genius. It's a really good book that he thoroughly enjoyed, and he'd be very interested to know if there are any studies that back up the idea that understanding how the brain works improves cognition and learning. And I probably should have researched that. I haven't. I I kind of figured, no, that was my assumption. It's the sort of thing that I assume that humans are too stupid to learn. There is, I believe there is some vaguely related stuff, whether it's actually experimental or if it's just conjecture, relating to the IAT, the implicit association test, and particularly yeah. 
the idea that if you have a test like the IAT, which is primarily used to test for sort of unconscious racial bias, if knowledge of that test's existence kind of permeates its way into the cultural zeitgeist, then it will become a less effective tool as people, you know, get wise to it. Uh, oh, right. OK. But it start. It can't erase your prejudices, can it? No. But then again, I suppose that there's also all the stuff on like um, neurofeedback might be sort of in line with that. I mean, it's not exactly understanding the brain, but um, yeah, because um, so Kieran's example is that the fundamental attribution error knowing about it changes the way that you think about things and i suppose that's true if you know that everyone is sitting around going oh well the reason someone did that is because of their personality not because of the circumstances if you realize that then you're gonna then swing the other way and assume that everything is circumstantial and no one's personality <laughs> matters which also, is uh, true <laughs> something i mean on this on attribution theory and stuff like that one of the key factors of most of the theories in there is that you have to be kind of motivated and engaged and it, like uh, undergoing sort of systematic processing of oh, yes, materials. Of if you're if you're not, then you're just going to rely on whatever heuristics you have. And uh, even if you know about it, those heuristics yeah, are shift, unlikely right? to. If you're if you're not processing it, in, if you're processing it at a deep enough level to be aware of your own fundamental attribution error, then you're probably not going to be suffering from a fundamental attribution error. And if you're not that aware of your own thoughts then you're probably just going to suffer from it but i don't know i'm 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 impressed and glad to hear that it sounds like it's working for you so we we should potentially look into that at some point yeah case study yeah <laughs> uh, n of one uh, well i also have some feedback i have two pieces of feedback so i win hooray oh uh, if we were competing i might have divvied these up differently ha <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> it was a ruse uh, anyway it's a trick. Uh, the first piece of feedback is from a Charles who re refers to the pun from the outro last week, stockbrokers area. Uh, he says that hurt worse than electrical deep brain stimulation of the anterior singlet cortex. Uh, well, I that's... hear that hurts a lot. I'm I'm glad to hear that because <laughs> you know I have been long working on weaponizing the common pun, and so I'm glad to hear that that has been successful. The closest I've come previously is making one of my ex-housemates say that he wanted to vomit. But, I mean, that, that could have been conflated with any other, any number of other... <laughs> I was going to say, does he really concerts. need a reason? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the second piece of feedback is from Brett. Uh, he says he actually did miss seeing a new podcast. Uh, he writes last week, so this must have been a couple of weeks ago. Um, as ours is one of the few he does manage to keep up with. Uh, the others being a current affairs one uh, from the great ABC here in Oz and the hilarious book was better podcast where the host read novelization of a movie to see which is superior. That sounds awesome. Um, yeah, if they do, can I just jump in and say Revenge of the Sith? <laughs> read the novelization. It's Matthew Stover and therefore excellent. It's makes a good thing out of that film. Well, if if that he sent feedback to them as well and they have listened to his feedback and in doing so somehow ended up with us then they may have heard that and therefore they might do so i so, might just suggest it to them yeah or you could just the direct it. approach yeah i'm trying uh, to be less passive aggressive when i podcast anyway he also says he reckons that the phrase for asserting one's male friends are not to be usurped by one's intimate female friends for a male should be Ben, please use, and he requests that I use my East London gangster voice again for this one. I think he means Danny Dyer. I think he means 
you know, brothers before lovers kind of, or brothers before lovers if it's Danny Dyer. But I thought it could also be like brothers before lovers though, in it. So, uh, and all of those. I do get you, Ben. I yeah. do get you. All of those will upset Where, the girlfriend. The, she the impersonation. To listen to this. The impersonation you're doing there is not so much an impersonation of an urban youth in London, so much as an impersonation of the Marcus Brigstock impersonation. That is you can only ever do the second order. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, my, my impersonations have just reached that level. They're, they're, they're that subtle. Wow. Great. Um, <laughs> Some what would you... argue. What have you done this fortnight? Well, this fortnight I did a, a thing which is going to help with a bit of like cross promotion. Um, I Ooh. discovered from one of my friends on Facebook that his comedy group was going to be coming to Oxford to do their Edinburgh Fringe show. Bum, bum, bum. They are called the Beta Males. Uh, it's five uh, guys who do an assortment of very weird and very, very good sketches about all sorts of things they tend to have a theme so their shows in the past have been like the theme of a train robbery or the space race and the one that they're prepping material for at the moment is called superopolis and so there were a lot of like early drafts of superhero related sketches in it which were excellent because they were both extremely accessible and funny at face value but they also contained a large number of in jokes for comic book nerds which i was very pleased to get a few of uh so yeah you guys should all go and check out the be the beta males they are very very funny we'll put links to one of their very few youtube videos in the show notes and also to their website thebetamails.com and if you happen to be going to edinburgh you should totally check them out at the fringe because uh, they're great my friend john henry uh, is is one of the key members and uh also got completely stark naked on stage in a very intimate uh, small theater uh, oh uh, was it the uh, ofs uh it was yes it was in fact <laughs> that's a pretty and, intimate uh, theater <laughs> threatened at one point to do star jumps apparently a friend of mine who came along who's seen them do this before says that if he's drunk enough he does do the star jumps Thankfully, it's a tradition for all like sketch groups of the multiple male variety that one of them is like that mm. um Right, yeah. So yeah, beta males, go check them out. What have you done this for? Well, I'm fulfilling the other half of our brief in that I went to the Cheltenham Science Festival uh, <laughs> this week. Um, admittedly, I did it for work, so um, I didn't go to any of the talks on, like, uh, you know, progress on dementia and stuff, uh, so much as the interactive discovery science stuff. But hey, that was pretty good. Um, one of the things we did was uh, collect the DNA out of a strawberry. And uh, the scientist there gave me the DNA and I put it in my pocket. And when I got back home, I couldn't find where the DNA had gone. So I'm kind of worried that this DNA is now just in my system and I'm becoming, you know, like overtaken the by... strawberry man. Exactly. It's like Swamp Thing, but much sweeter and redder. Well, I was going to say, pretty similar to uh, uh, one of my friend's comic book heroes, the Mighty Jambo, whose power is strawberry jam. Um, <laughs> it's a good power. I mean, it, I guess if... You're like the Red Hulk to the uh, Swamp Thing's regular Hulk. Okay, yeah. Um, red Swamp. <laughs> <laughs> Strawberry Fields thing. Hmm. What? That was good. Come what on. Would, what, would a, what would a strawberry su superpower be? Would it be like you go really well with cream? Um, lots of people are allergic to me. 
<laughs> but only yeah, if yeah. they lick me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's more likely, to be honest, rather than you getting superpowers from absorbing strawberry DNA, that your pocket is going to get strawberry powers from absorbing DNA. And by strawberry powers, I mean a strawberry plant is going to start growing out of your pocket. I don't think that just raw DNA grows. I mean, I well, know that... You As clearly haven't been reading many comic books then, have you? <laughs> I, I prefer too many indie comic books. They just Fandex is over, Ben. Um, so anyway, on that front, um, uh, we did also test... I've um, seen you on the weekends. I know you don't think that's true. <laughs> uh, um, we also tested how much force it takes to break various uh, chocolate bars. Um, so uh, working out which one absorbs the most energy. And it was fudge. And that was the one I guessed because I'm great at material science. <laughs> <laughs> Slash, it's an obvious answer. Um, but I did feel smug because a kid said curly whirly. And I was like, ha, no. Idiot. I didn't say Get that out. loud, obviously. <laughs> Um, well, you should have done. But it was a good thing for like uh, children, families, and people who are just interested in science that involves messing around with stuff. Um, and, That's the best uh, kind of science. And it was free to go into that bit of it. You had to pay for the talk. So I was like, ha, no. Um, and we did that. <laughs> um, but yeah, Chelt SciFest. Uh, it's a cool event that's in the Midlands. And Hooray. That's cool. Um, Is it? Yeah. Yeah, the Midlands <laughs> is cool. Actually, I, I I always feel weird when I go to Cheltenham because um, there was this amazing sociological study that I quote all the time by the University of, I'm going to go with Sheffield, might have been Leeds, uh, that worked out the actual cultural line of the North versus the South. And that line lies between Worcester and Cheltenham. And so Worcester is like the southernmost point in some ways that you can uh, be still in the North. Um, so when I say that you're from the North... I mean, I yeah, if you split it into a binary sociologically divide, speaking, <laughs> it depends on whether you want to ignore the Midlands or not. And trouble is, most people <laughs> do. So, um, yeah, <laughs> so I always feel a bit weird. It's like, oh, so suddenly everything around me feels alien and terrifying and posh. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the South. Well, yeah, welcome to Gloucestershire. Come this way. We've got a coal mine set up right for you over here. <laughs> Uh, okay. Aren't we terrible? I have no idea how to transition to media of the fortnight. Um. Well, we could uh, not really, but then my media of the fortnight is quite kind of incongruous. Okay. Um, well, but I think we should talk about your one first because my one is controversial. So you go with unconquerous and then we'll have controversial. Well, uh, unconquerous. Uh, yes. I said incongruous. I just you said, said it badly. You, you said unconquerous. It, neither of my medias of the week contain conquers because um, I actually have two because one of them is like actually a proper media, but it's all like super mainstream. So I did go and see Fast and Furious 6 this week. Uh, which was really awesome. And me and Christina have both, well, I mean, I, I, for a while, been a massive fan of both the Fast and the Furious franchise and Vin Diesel as a concept. Um, but I, I recently inducted Christina into the joys of Fast Five and Fast and Furious. And uh, so we decided to go see Fast and Furious 6 because we both really enjoy them. But the the thing with these films is that they're not you know they're not objectively like good stories the scripts are very dodgy the action sequences are impeccable they're astonishing um 
but it, it's sort of led to a, a, what I found quite an interesting kind of soul searching process of trying to work out what it is about Vin Diesel that I actually like, what it is that makes me like him so much, because he's not a very good actor. He's a passably good action star and he stars in some movies that I quite enjoy, but that I have quite a, a deep seated like affection for him. And I don't think it's just because he plays World of Warcraft and Dungeons and Dragons, although I think that helps. It helps, right? It helps. Um, is it is it the fabled man crush? Because I have, you know, no, that man crush on a lot of isn't. charismatic look- actors who it's like they're charismatic and that kind of catches you in some way. I think, I think he looks like a man has been made out of Play-Doh. But the, and I, what I, I worked out, I think, I think I've worked it out. He's been in he's basically only been in two franchises and then a couple of fringe films. And those are The Fast and the Furious and The Chronicles of Riddick. I uh, see you're that. denying that Triple X is a franchise. Well, apparently there is a, an, another Triple X. They always actually. talk about him coming back to Triple X three. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm talking about it's never going to happen once. But if you look at his IMDb page, he hasn't been in a lot of stuff. Um but anyway, these are the two things. And you see him talking in interviews about both of these franchises. And it is absolutely clear that he really, really cares about them. He knows, you know, he, he's apparently got storyline plotted out for all the way through to like Fast and Furious 10. And he's been working for so long to get, uh, you know, uh, the new Chronicles of Riddick film made. And he works yeah. out to get the Chronicles of Riddick made after Pitch Black. Like... He, they're not they're not the most kind of stunning of cinematic achievements, but he really care. You get the impression he really does care about these franchises, and he's you know devoted to getting them exactly right and exactly the way he wants them. And I think that's really res- like worthy worthy of respect. And oh, you- I, I totally agree. I think creators and creative people who actually love what they're doing mm. is important and it's surprisingly rare especially in franchise movies oh, yeah exactly and i mean you go on like the fast and furious wiki and you find that like the the canonicity something you should be very interested in the canonicity oh, yeah. of fast and furious is surprisingly sound okay i haven't are... listened to the overthinking it podcast yet but i saw a tweet tokyo drift is set in the future is that right yeah, although it's debate, it ha- that is the one issue is as to whether that is canon or not. And there is a, a, a sort of sting at the end of Fast and Furious 6, suggesting that they're kind of trying to weave at least aspects of it back into the continuity. But like, okay. yeah, all that kind of stuff. It's it, like all the characters have, you know, consistent storylines and all this kind of thing. It's it's just really cool. I like it. I've so. never seen a single one of those films, um, but I'm not like close to the idea the trailers always make them look exciting. Yeah, I would recommend start with Fast Five because it's probably the best. Uh, okay. You don't need to have seen the previous ones to work out <laughs> what's going on. I sure. Mean, it's been a long time and I haven't seen Tokyo Drift and I don't intend to because apparently it's awful. But um, anyway, my other media of the week is Baker Cat, which is a website you can go to with a animated GIF of a cartoon cat rolling dough in a baker hat sitting on a stool uh, with some exceptionally catchy and bouncy uh, jazz in the background. Is this the leak spin of our generation? Uh, I don't know what a leak spin is, but it sounds... Oh, oh, Ben, what were you doing in the internet when you were 13? Don't answer that. But very little. I don't think we had the... I guess I must have had the internet. I don't know. I forget that you've come from the uncivilized East. 
Yeah, as opposed um, to the, the capital that is Worcester. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were probably briefly capital during the Civil War, just because <laughs> Charles II was de facto leader of the Royalists. I don't know. Um, I, oh no, I did live in Worcester. I went. I was at a school at Birmingham, and we had we had the internet. It had arrived, and we wasted time doing stupid things. And one of them was seeing how many hours you could rack on on a website called Leakspin, which I think was a flash, but it was just someone spinning a leak. So maybe a four-frame animation and a catchy song. Okay, and it sounds that, like Baker Cat is a similar principle. It's exactly the same principle. It do, it even has the little timer down the bottom saying you yep. telling you how long you've been on the page. Okay, um, so yeah, it's the similar principle. <laughs> but the thing about Baker Cat is that I found it it the the music is so good for working to. Like I was, right. I often have difficulty doing my prep for the show because although it's enjoyable once I get into it, it takes me a while to kind of get into the flow and that kind of thing. And it, yeah. I'm sure that shows, but. When you put on Baker Cat, first of all, you, you go on the website and you see the little cat and he's amazing. And so you feel perked up already. And then the music kicks in and it's this infectious groove. And you just you just feel motivated to do whatever you're doing. And it's been working wonders for me all week. And, you know, you don't need to leave it on very long, maybe a, through, a few runs through of the song before it starts to, you know, lose its power. But by that stage, you're already into whatever it is you're doing. You're so, in the flow state. I am in the flow state, as induced by Baker Cat. So I heartily recommend everyone goes onto Baker Cat as soon as possible, really. Right. So um, well, then we're to about to do something pretty dangerous. What's that? We're about to disagree. Oh, no. Apparently. So <laughs> my meter of the fortnight is not something that needs any promotion. One of promotion. us is going to get arrested. And the other one of us is going to developed <laughs> that doesn't work at all uh yeah arrested development season four the neck the net the stupid voice the netflix original semi-original series um so i've watched all of this have you watched all of it no that's probably the problem that pr- might be part of the problem how much of it have you watched i think because i won't be giving out spoilers four or five episodes and i know that a lot of people have said to me you need to, like it improves as as you kind of get into it i've been waiting for it to start improving and haven't found any indication of that i am going to persist with it but thus far i think it's been pretty dire okay whereas i was terrified having watched the first episode that it was going to be terrible because all of the rhythms felt wrong and there yeah. was one joke i laughed at in the first episode um which was uh George Michael, can you help me? My uh, phone's calendar seems to be stuck in 2003. Mm. Um, but from episode one onwards, I have loved the season. I think it's better than season three. I think it's on a par with the other seasons. It's so clever. It's so intricately plotted. And I'm so glad to see a comedy that's like, no, let's have a ridiculously complex plot. And it is a plot and it is ongoing and it reveals a little bit each time. Um, and I feel like the characters have not grown or moved on or developed but (laughs) have gone in new directions um i love the role of ron howard in the show i think that's a brilliant addition to bring him in in real life um and yeah i think it's great it's still just the fact is that you have to pay so much attention to it and it rewards that and there's one little bit where like there's just a throwaway thing where michael says something about brother o and that's a whole callback to something and that's the one reference to a whole plot line and it's packed full of that it's so dense and i think i can 
I, I actually I found that that was that was something which kind of grated against me. The extent because yeah. you are right it is just it is reference to it's self-reference after self-reference after self-reference after callback after callback. And I, I absolutely appreciate how that could can be extremely engaging and interesting to watch. And I can also appreciate why it would appeal to you and it would yeah. normally appeal to me. But the problem is. I, you know, I haven't finished season three because I ah, didn't yeah, like it. Well, and no, I it's kind been of don't like season three. Slightly too long since I've watched the rest of it. And so I knew that, you know, I could tell in the, I can tell in the episodes that they are making references and making callbacks. And the, the thing that just happened is technically a joke, but it doesn't, it doesn't raise any humor in me. And, okay. Uh, I, I already no, had still, watched... still waiting for the, s- that to kick yeah. in. I've still I've I've watched the series more than once before. You know the original three that seasons, or at least. the original two seasons. I've watched a couple of times, and when you watch these the second time, you realise that from episode one, every episode is like this. Yeah. But I guess the trick that they do, at least in the first season, is that it still also stands up on its own as a sitcom. Whereas perhaps now it doesn't stand up on its own as a sitcom, but it still has this density, and they've given up on that balance because of what. I think they're trying to do. They're not trying to persuade new viewers to watch it on television. Sure. You know, you've bought, if you're going to watch season four, you've bought into the show, I guess. I think so again, guess, it's yeah. about that continuity dense thing. The difference is that, yeah, you don't have to watch the first four Fast and Furious movies to watch Fast <laughs> Five, which is the best there we one. Go. I think also like that, that I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Most people who are Arrested Development fans will have watched it, will have seen the first three seasons more than once because it's yep. been out for such a long time that you know they it's like the firefly firefly thing i've i've seen firefly all the way through innumerable times because it's been out so long and there's been nothing new to see of it whereas i came yep. to arrested development very late i only last year and so it, it hasn't embedded itself in my conscience to the extent that it would need to in order for the season four to work in the way yeah. that it's clearly intended to work. So I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that it is objectively bad. I'm just saying that I have yet to find my enjoyment in it, but I am hopeful that I will. And I'm glad yeah. you have. Yeah. Okay, good. I still I feel think like Baker we've... Cat is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't seen Baker Cat yet, so we'll have to see. We've had good discourse though. Uh, what do you think of the new Daft Punk album? <laughs> May as well talk about less. all the things. What did you think uh, about the latest Game of Thrones? <laughs> well, I read the books, so I don't care. But I am, like, if someone spoiled it for me, I'd be f- actually quite angry. I don't care about all spoilers, but See, that's was... it in the book. When you get to the bit that everyone's been talking about in uh, The Storm of Swords, and I know that we did make a series of Red Wedding jokes, or at least I did when we went to a wedding last year. Um, but I don't think I spoiled anything in that. Um, it's brilliant and so out of the left field that I wouldn't want it spoiled for me. You say that, but I was, and I agree, but I was listening to Podtoid earlier, the uh, Destructoid podcast, and Jim Sterling was saying, when, when, Harry, when Harry Potter was on, uh, the Harry Potter films were coming out, uh, all the people who'd read the books were spoiling it like left, right and centre. They were just being mean and vindictive about it. And now that the Game of Thrones is coming out on TV, all the people who are watching the show but haven't read the books are being like, oh, man, this is really the, people are being really nice. They're not spoiling it for us. 
thinking yeah. that that is people being nice. It is not. The lack of spoiling Game of Thrones is pure cruelty on the part of people who have read the <laughs> because books. Because it teaches you to love certain characters. But, okay, so the reason I like that whole plot is because it's George R. R. Martin saying, okay, you think you've got your head around my arcs now. There are certain characters who um, can survive in this world. And if they are going to die, they're going to die for a reason that makes sense. They're going to die fighting the things that they want to fight. And once you've got that in your head, okay, so there's some random death, but, you know, even thus far, it's this felt like there's a sense to it. And then it gets to that point and he goes, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you think you've got your head around the tropes of my world, but you're wrong. Unfortunately, it then leads to the next trope of everyone is going to die. And so now I don't feel shock when a character in A Song of Ice and Fire dies when I read the latter books. Because I'm just like, well, they were all doomed to die as soon as they were George R.R. R. Martin characters. And some people say that's a bit nihilistic and it still matters how people get to their various places. But that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. Well, there's anyway. There's a little extra media of the week for you. Well, yeah, uh, we've solved all of the three things the internet's talking about. Um, shall we, we talk shall about we some, some psychology? psychology? Okay, I've got, uh, I've got one for you. Uh, speaking of crushingly depressing things, hey, Tim, you know what's funny? Drug addiction. Um, yeah. Correct response. And you know what's also funny? Invasive animal testing. Hooray. <laughs> Hooray! Uh, with that in mind, uh, let's crack on, pun absolutely intended, with what I'm sure will be an absolutely hilarious oh. study oh. about cocaine addiction in monkeys. Woo! Yeah. Um, do you want to point out the source for this study? Oh, yeah. A friend of mine uh, was laughing at it on the internet. I think that's really all that needs to be given. I'm wishing he could have been a psychologist. Yeah, actually, that, this is the first time in, he's an ancient historian by... I guess trade trade doesn't feel like <laughs> trade <laughs> uh, by by disposition birth. Uh, actually, I think attrition is probably the best <laughs> given his attitude towards ac academic the academic process. Anyway, this is the first time in the many years that I've known him that he's ever expressed anything other than contempt for psychology. So this is if if co giving cocaine to monkeys is what it takes, then load Job up. done, psychologists. <laughs> Anyway, so a problem with drug addiction, one of the problems with drug addiction, one of the many problems with drug addiction is that it's very difficult to study vulnerability. Um, you know, of all the people who take an addictive drug like cocaine, some will go on to become addicted, but some will not. Uh, unfortunately, as the authors of this paper rather remorsefully point out, ethical considerations make it impossible to experimentally test drug addiction risk in humans, much though we might wish to. Um, and as we all know, ethics is the path of the dark side. Ethics leads to anger. Anger leads to impatience and impatience leads to suffering, usually amongst monkeys. Speaking of monkey suffering, let's talk about injecting monkeys with cocaine. So, as you may know, monkeys in general and macaques in particular uh, live in groups where the biggest and strongest monkey gets to bully, steal from and sexually subjugate all other monkeys, often at the same time. Uh, for this reason, they are known as social animals. Other social <laughs> animals include chimpanzees, whose mating displays can include the brutal killing of colobus monkeys, dolphins, who are partial to interspecies gang rape, and humans, who are responsible for genocide, bear baiting, and Simon Cowell. 
Speaking of atrocities committed on humans, uh, by humans on unsuspecting innocent victims, let's talk about injecting monkeys with cocaine. <laughs> You'll get, get there eventually, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> you say that, but you remember <laughs> last time. <laughs> so, we know that the part the part of the reason for cocaine's addictive potential is its effect on the brain's reward mechanism, specifically the neurotransmitter dopamine. Uh, studies have shown that certain environmental conditions can affect dopamine function. In particular, it's been found that for social animals like monkeys, uh, rank in the group hierarchy can significantly influence their dopamine activity. Uh, this led the authors of the paper to hypothesize that social rank might influence the addictive susceptibility of monkeys when faced with mountains of delicious cocaine. Uh, thus, we find the title of the paper, Social Dominance in Monkeys, Dopamine D2 Receptors and Cocaine Self-Administration. Cocaine Self-Administration, sorry. Now, that's quite a good title. You know, it's clear, concise and to the point. But I do feel like calling it Cocaine Self-Administration makes it sound awfully humdrum, like doing your tax returns. Uh, you can kind of imagine the monkeys being like, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a while. I heard you're self-employed. How's that working out for you? Oh, you know, pretty well. I mean, the self-administration's a bit of a pain, but I get to keep my own hours and all the cocaine I can snort. <laughs> Speaking of things which should really only be done by qualified professionals if you want to avoid a visit from the government inspectors, let's talk about injecting monkeys with cocaine. So, Do you oh, ever want to just write off, you know, to like the home office just to say, can I have some drugs and see like what the flimsiest premise you can get them for science <laughs> is? You say want to. <laughs> <laughs> have you been asked to by your supervisor? <laughs> <laughs> so many times. Just say no. Uh, anyway, so, oh, oh, by the way, um, the first author on this paper is called Drake Morgan, which is one of the best names for a 16th century privateer I have ever heard. <laughs> anyway, speaking of borderline criminal activity perpetrated with the tacit approval of international governments, let's talk about injecting monkeys with cocaine. Ah, <laughs> uh, running jokes. So, <laughs> if you repeat it enough times, it becomes funny. So, yeah, that uh, principle does work. You know, squire. <laughs> So, you know you're operating at a whole nother level when the opening line of the method section of your paper reads, for the first 1.5 years of the study. Whoa. Yeah. Now, obviously, I'm not going to read the rest of the method section verbatim, but it can be roughly summarised as, for the first 1.5 years of the study, the monkeys were led to believe that everything was normal. I mean, okay, they got a couple of P, uh, PET scans to measure their baseline dopamine function, but I mean, what self-respecting laboratory monkey doesn't have their brain scanned every year or so? Anyway, to cut a 1.5-year story short, after 12 months, each monkey had a so-called vascular access port surgically implanted into their back. You know the bit in The Matrix where Neo has the plug sockets all over him? Yeah, turns out we do that to monkeys. Ten Although, <laughs> if you shoot a proton torpedo into a vascular access port, <laughs> it's you unshielded. Kill a monkey, <laughs> for which you receive ten points to humanity, and by humanity, I of course mean Slytherin. <laughs> anyway, sadly true. Sadly true. Once the monkeys were suitably prepared with their vascular access ports, they were then given daily opportunities to self-administer varying doses of cocaine. Now, this is the part that I don't understand. If you are prepared 
to spend 1.5 years raising a group of monkeys in captivity, observing their social structure, giving them regular expensive brain scans. If you have the skill and resources to be able to implant delicate surgical equipment into their backs, and if you have the patience and time necessary to teach said monkeys not to freak the Freud out at having a giant hypodermic syringe implanted into their spine, being asked once a day to climb into a special monkey chair, which is then reversed onto a giant needle, and the fact that said giant horrifying needle is rammed full of cocaine, which will be shot into their back when they pull a lever, if you have the energy, will, and bloody-minded disregard for animal welfare to do all of that, why... Why couldn't you just teach the monkeys to cut lines of coke with credit cards like the rest of us? <laughs> maybe Surely maybe all is... monkeys, um, and I presume that these are... Did, what sort of monkeys were these? Macaques. Okay. Maybe they're just bad at snorting. Maybe that's just a thing that We're separates us from them. They, they're all nostril. <laughs> that might make it more difficult. You know, you just kind of rub your face over it and it just doesn't go in. I don't know. I'm not a macaque. And to be honest, I've never... Oh, no, I have seen it in real life. It looked angry. (laughs) It was in a zoo, but it knew knew that it didn't like me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I think it would be easier to teach them to cut lines with credit cards. I mean, look, right, right... Right here in my wallet, I have a perfectly serviceable Waterstones loyalty card that I will give you, Drake Morgan. I know it's not not exactly a black American express, but it's not like you're actually serving the cocaine up to monkeys on the breasts of a high class hooker or anything. I'm sure they could manage. And just think of the media attention. I mean, right now, all you've got is ethically ambiguous scientist injects monkeys with dangerous substance under flimsy pretense of betterment of humanity. That's old news. That's dog bites man. But if you teach the little buggers to cut blow like miniature Tony Montana's, set the footage to rehab by Amy Winehouse, and you've got yourself a YouTube sensation waiting to happen. Yeah. Do you reckon that would rehab? I said, (laughs) you know, that that maybe should have been the outro song. Would it be easier to write, I imagine? Maybe next week. <laughs> uh, Just anyway. tack it on. Speaking of the future prospects of otherwise bright and hopeful individuals being destroyed through systematic drug, drug abuse, let's talk about injecting monkeys with <laughs> cocaine! <laughs> uh, and so, to the results. Uh, Drake Morgan and his team of steampunk sky pirate drug barons found that monkeys with low status in the social hierarchy were more likely to become addicted uh, to the cocaine than the dominant animals. Uh, They also showed that the dominant monkeys showed an increase in D2 dopamine receptors as they rose, over over the course of the couple of years, as they rose to their position of dominance within the social group, whilst the subordinate monkeys showed no such increase. Uh, They sadly do not explicitly conclude that socially dominant humans may be more resistant to the addictive effects of dopaminergic drugs such as cocaine. But I'm pretty sure it's there in the subtext. Uh, For their follow-up study, they also sadly do not recommend the broad-scale survey of drug habits amongst the various strata of human social hierarchies. Are high-flying executives less prone to addiction than homeless people with similar levels of drug exposure? They completely fail to ask. Well... and There's so. other factors in human society, isn't there? <laughs> that and is... the whole crack powder dichotomy thing, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, variables, it, it is tricky. Anyway, 
on the subject of abandoning an intriguing psychological premise just when it's getting interesting let's stop talking about injecting monkeys with cocaine end of study right that's less illuminating than i thought it would be i suppose it's not surprising hey if you have low dopamine because of society improve it with cocaine <laughs> that's I mean, the message right they did point out that, that the fact that they sort of showed this longitudinal increase in uh d2 receptors in the dominant monkeys as they rose to their position is actually quite a novel finding in and of itself because previously oh, right. okay. it hasn't really been known whether do- the monkeys that become dominant already have more dopamine and that somehow oh, yeah. helps them I forgot the whole causality thing or whether you know being the biggest and strongest and punching all the other monkeys gives them you know more reward things and they seem to have suggested that it's the latter okay. which is not to say that they aren't you know predispositions to dominance present in monkeys anyway. sure sure okay excellent well let's talk about something a mite jollier uh, not about mites about rats um so i love all of our listeners like a family uh that is to say uh because i'm obligated to them no matter what they do but <laughs> just like in real life i'm constantly looking to expand the family and unlike in real life, I don't really mind what species our listeners are. If they can listen <laughs> and laugh along, I'll take them. But according to Panksepp and Bergdorf, there's an animal that can laugh along. So uh, that is, There's some good names right there. Yeah, Panksepp is the biggest name there is in the reductionist neuroscience of emotion, barring perhaps uh, Edmund T. Rolls. But, you know, those guys are pretty similar, except that Panksepp is widely read and re- accepted. Um, so I suppose... <laughs> Uh, so yeah to pangsep everything comes down to the very simple stimulus response stuff in the amygdala that is the same whether you're a rat or a human and some people including myself don't really like that but hey sorry for bringing cognition in um it's almost like the many many years since behaviorism didn't happen yeah well you know it's adding it's behavioral neuroscience i'm sure that pangsep would you know not say that and you know this study is not particularly anti-human emotions um so yeah let's actually look at this research so to introduce we need some basic concepts um so animal vocalizations or to you and me noises have been found to represent emotions so yeah that's not your laughter (laughs) (laughs) just tristesse in general or the specifically most common form of tristesse i am not thinking (laughs) about unsatisfied seals for example those seals aren't unsatisfied you you can't unhear it (laughs) um so uh yeah uh isolation calls reflect distress and in rats that's the 40 kilohertz call it's an isolation call uh but you can also provoke it using other sorts of stress like cold and that call triggers a kind of automatic maternal response in rats uh, in adults, there's what I think of as the manly cry, you know, the fake I'm not really hurt distress sort of noise, which in humans is a kind of grunt uh, at 20 kilohertz, uh, which appears in painful shocks, drug withdrawal and social defeat. And that is right. To rats, being lonely and rejected is the same noise as coming off heroin. Uh, there is, of course, a jollier sort of chirp. It's a 50 kilohertz sound, so a high pitched one. It turns up in play. So that's nice. It turns up in sex, which I suppose is nice. Apparently, uh, it turns up in aggression. And well, rats like aggression. It's fun. Uh, And most importantly of all, it turns up in tickling. And it sounds like this. If that was anything close to 50 kilohertz, you'd win a prize. But I don't know if it is. Um, So, (laughs) I mean, it might be more like... (laughs) um, (laughs) 
<laughs> See, that could just be the bleep, or maybe the rat was swearing. <laughs> exactly. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, there's a bit of a debate about whether these 50 kilohertz vocalizations are a sign of positive motivation or whether they're specifically social. And I mean, if you just let things like that slide, there'd be no research left to do, no grants. <laughs> um, so, they do appear when you give rats lovely, lovely drugs. But then, of course, drugs are always cheating the systems. And being biopsychologists, they obviously have to find its role and its purpose, barring that it might be a motor artifact. But if it is a motor artifact, which by which I mean a kind of thing left over from evolution that if you move in a certain way, hey, you also make this noise, um, it comes out in quite specific circumstances. So it would be really weird if it was a motor artifact. Uh, they reckon it is the rat analogy of childhood or playful laughter. And I initially thought that all laughter was by its nature playful. But then I suppose there's also nervous laughter and cruel laughter. Actually, laughter is quite complicated. Uh, it seems like the sort of thing that we only see in humans and muttly. And yet tickling <laughs> is the key. Tickling makes primates, including humans, laugh. And it makes rats chirp. So Panksepp and Bergdorf write, Young children relish such somatosensory stimulation, as long as it is kept within limits. And the present data suggest young rats do likewise. Yeah, as long as it's kept within its limits really is key. There is that thin line between, hey, this is fun, and hey, this is basically torture. Um, and obviously that line is set in different places for different people, and if you ever tickle me... And on different websites. Pretty angry. Pretty angry if you tickle me, uh, or touch me in any way. Um, so they already know that rats respond better to social things when they've been isolated in advance. And I imagine this is true for all of us. A relatively low-level social thing will make us feel better if we've been in all day working hard, not seeing anyone, by which I mean doing prep. Um, so they're going to test whether tickling has a different impact. They're also going to do some more unusual, or at least to me, who doesn't read all that much animal research things, selectively breeding rats who respond at different rates and then give them some drugs. It is quite the party over in Bowling Green State University. Oh, did I mention that their university was Bowling Green University inside a Bowling Green? That's, yeah, that's where this is. Um, so first, the simple tickling. So step one, isolation. Six rats were isolated, six were socially housed. Now, in the UK, social housing gets a bad press because of certain <laughs> class implications and potential ghettoisation, but it's clearly preferable to isolate housing. Well, yeah, I'd worry about that. Uh, of course, being an introvert, the idea of living in a house out in the middle of nowhere entirely alone isn't unappealing. You know, some distant tower in the post-war abandoned wilds of Croatia. Um, uh, be nice. Um, so... Uh, the reason that they do this isolation is because laboratory rats probably do not typically regard their human experimenters as desirable social companions. I feel so rejected by these rats. <laughs> so this housing happened at weaning, 21 days old, and they were tested at 50 days old. The rats were moved into a plastic box and they were tickled for two minutes in the sequence of 15 seconds of tickling, followed by 15 seconds of no tickling. It's very important we know this. Uh, they did this once per day for two consecutive days. Very important we know that. Um, they would tickle their necks with their right hands first and then flip them over and tickle their tummies. Who's a good rat? Who's a good rat? Um, I the flipping... can't tell if you're being facetious about it being important that we know. No, I am being facetious. Uh, the flipping okay. did flipping concern me. Um, they claim even though the tickling was brisk and assertive, because assertive tickling, that's a thing, uh, care was taken not to frighten the animals. Now, I've not been flipped over to be tickled or indeed for any other reason recently. And I'm still not sure how you alleviate the scariness. I mean, maybe by tickling, I suppose. Uh, they then reversed <laughs> the housing conditions and did one set of tickling and then put them all back in their original homes and did two more sets of tickling. Uh, so they used a bat detector to measure the chirps. 
they had an experiment to manually count the chirps while using this bat detector to listen. And this is the worst episode of the Adam West Batman ever. Like, this, Robin, is my bat-rat chirp detector. <laughs> I, I just have... I, when you say bat detector, I just imagine a metal detector, but pointing up into the dark. <laughs> and just, like, someone out in a field, like, in an anorak, just going around in the middle of the day, looking very disappointed that he hasn't found anything with his bat detector. Well, you know... One, at one point, it bleeped, but it turned out it was just a pigeon. Okay. Oh, right, so it can detect birds. It's not going for, like, ultrasonic stuff. Well, what yeah, sort I mean, of Anglo-Saxon treasures are buried in the sky? A, me- a metal detector will pick up, you know, old bottle caps and, and you know, little bits of broken yeah, metal. metal. You're not always going to get, like... So metal broken. detector detects metal, bat detector detects bats and birds. See? Maybe the pigeon had just been playing cricket. I don't know. <laughs> I- I'd watch that as a spectator sport. Um, so, yeah, the chirping started as soon as the tickling did, and it continued at a steady rate. And basically, the isolated rats chirped at a higher rate, um, uh, which reduced when they were put in social housing and then reverted when they were isolated again. And the socially housed rats, you know, it showed the opposite pattern. They had a low rate of chirping to start with. It raised when they were isolated and then went back down once they were socially housed. So in the next experiment, they saw how willing the rats were to come and get tickling to simplify it. They had them in a bell jar and they could come out and explore this area for the first few days of testing. And then for a few days, they would tickle them if they came out. And then they went back to no tickling to see for, to look for, see for, what even is that? To look for what is called extinction. It's an explosive, Tim. Oh yes, so it is. Also, you sunk my battleship. In behaviour terms, extinction is how long it takes to stop doing something that used to get a certain outcome. Like pressing a button for food once that outcome stops happening. And both or sorts of extinction... shoving your vascular access port into the large needle in order to receive cocaine yeah how long would it take you to stop doing that if there's no longer any cocaine in there both sorts of extinction are accelerated by meteors and the isolated animals increased the speed at which they came out for tickling whereas the socially housed animals tried to escape apparently the humans were just being too friendly for them they needed to back off stop commenting on every wall post replying to every tweet and (laughs) this may have gotten a little autobiographical whoopsie sorry uh anyway uh the extinction was faster for the socially housed animals whereas the isolated animals would come out and even chirp a little just because of the association between the place and being tickled so the next experiment looked at this associative laughing they used two distinctive boxes one in which isolated rats were tickled and one in which they weren't and measured anticipatory that is that right anticipatory 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 I don't like Tories. Chirping uh, when they were put back into those boxes after training. Uh, And rats enjoy tickling that much that after isolation, that this effect was in fact much stronger than a similar experiment that did the same thing, but with amphetamines instead of tickling. And I'd actually... (laughs) I think there should be more studies that run like that. In the next study, we used amphetamines instead of tickling. You know, between a white box and a green box, and you tickle them in one, and you don't tickle them in the other, and you put them back in the white box, say, where you tickle them, and they'll go, hee hee hee, essentially. And you can do the same with amphetamines, and they laugh, but less, because tickling is better than amphetamines. Um, (laughs) I'd quite like to test this with, like, comedy clubs held in different venues, you know, some that were always for comedy, some for other things. You know, are you more likely to laugh just because you're in the comedy store? Some in a big green box, some in a big white box. (laughs) 
Okay. Oh, yeah. I captured some humans and put them in different colored boxes. To some, I, I told put them goats. in a bell jar. <laughs> and if they came out of the bell jar, Frankie Boyle was nailed to the wall and was making funny noises at them. Is this is this one of your twisted sex fantasies? I, my studies this week have been really disturbing. I'm I really sorry. thought you were about to confess. No, but this is what it is. And <laughs> so they continued their progress of trying out ideas inspired by the previous experiment. Uh, the, so for this, they formally tested the conditions of tickling. Admittedly, when I wrote this, I kind of pictured rats in tuxedos. <laughs> um, Who wouldn't? Exactly. Let's um, let's say that they were wearing tuxedos. Okay. No, also, they were. Our listeners won't be any the wiser, and it'll improve their experience of the show. True. True. Um, so, um, they uh, did classical conditioning. Classical conditioning. Do you expect me to talk, Mister Ratbond? No. I... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I got them the wrong way round, but you got the idea. No, no, no. I, I did get it. I understood it. It's a laser that. T- <laughs> that would be so much better if Blofeld's laser just tickled him. <laughs> I thought it was like, instead of Blofeld's laser, it just kind of poured rats. No, no, you're, it's my one weakness. It's it's decreasing my external appearance of manliness by being <laughs> so ticklish. Yeah, you wouldn't get any Bond girls after that. Um, so, classical conditioning works, as I'm sure we've explained, by pairing a natural stimulus that leads to a natural response with an unnatural stimulus. Um, in this case, the unnatural stimulus was wiggling fingers in front of a rat's face. So they compared social and isolated rats and also pairing and not pairing the stimuli. And it was only the isolated rats with the paired stimuli that started chirping in response to wiggling fingers. Again, I kind of want to use this research to enhance the show by pairing something unconnected with humour with something that is. So maybe after hitting you with a silly pun, then just saying my name repeatedly or something. So should we try this? Should we try this? What do French cars do on their wedding anniversary? They reno their vows. Tim. Tim. Tim, 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 Tim. Um, What? Uh, No, a much more appropriate soundboard is one of my new sounds. I made a pun. (laughs) That's an Arrested Development season four thing. I made a pun. Um, Excellent. Hey, uh, do you you want to hear a joke? (laughs) No, but I imagine I will anyway. (laughs) Uh, I I can't remember. Oh, yeah. A baby seal walks into a club. Ouch. <laughs> uh, it works. It, it's bad on so many levels. Yeah. Not at least because baby seals probably can't walk. Um, so now hopefully you've it's had... not that it's it, it reports animal violence. It's not that it's a bad pun. It's that it's physiologically inaccurate. Yeah. I just realized why you played the uh, music. Um, so hopefully now you've paired laughter with my name and I might be setting myself up for some awkward romantic moments in the future. <laughs> Additionally awkward, let's say. So, disrupting your conditioning. All of these listeners who are potentially romantic partners. All two. Uh, so, <laughs> so the next experiment was a follow up to these same rats looking at the extinction and measuring the amount of play bites on the experimenter's fingers because rats are kinky. So the isolated animals had significantly more chirps during extinction and showed a significant increase in biting during extinction. And they believed that both the chirping and the biting was an attempt to get the experimenter to tickle them again. That these were social signals that another rat would interpret as let's play. Um, Actually, later in the study, they compare this behavior to an annoying kid. And in retrospect, I am glad that annoying kids don't constantly bite you. 
often. Depends on the kid, really. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, not like as a natural default behaviour. So now we get to the animal husbandry bit that we've all been looking forward to. Obviously, in human behavioural research, we don't get to create breeding programmes in dynasties based on the high-low split of one behavioural characteristic. And more's the pity. <laughs> they got the extreme pairs of high and low vocalisation responses to tickling, and they used brother-sister matings. Biologists are gross. They had a high group, a low group, and a random throats. group made of arbitrary pairs from the non-extreme responders. They tested them on this procedures... This rat is Cersei. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, I was just going to say, baby like, is called Joffrey, and he enjoys tickling and shooting prostitutes with crossbows. Is that a thing Joffrey does? Wow, I've forgotten that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they tested them on procedures akin to experiment one, experiment two. The results are, as you might expect, the high group had more vocalization than the random group, and they than the low group. Of course, when you say high group, we mean rats descended by four generations from an original set of high responders, rather than on drugs. Drugs is the next experiment. Similarly, they showed the motivation towards tickling that the random and low group didn't. So there's a definite genetic component to the responsiveness of tickling or the likelihood of laughing. And I suppose this might generalise to humans and that there should be a breeding programme to create a perfect comedy audience for us to perform to. <laughs> Lastly... They tested rats, having first given them one of a variety of drugs or a control. The drug MK801 was the only drug to have a significant effect. Oh, yeah. Significantly party. reducing the amount of chirping. Um, you can use MK801 as a party drug, but don't. MK801 <laughs> is a pretty scary drug that mimics both the positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia in animals. Uh, it is an antagonist of NDMA glutamate receptors, which are the absolute key receptors in learning anything, and also it is an antagonist of dopamine receptors, the key receptors in pleasure. Um, so they point out it's pretty surprising that there weren't any other drug effects, given that those drugs were morphine, amphetamine, scopolamine, that's truth drug, and haloperidol, a top powerful antipsychotic. All heavy drugs. These rats are clearly hardcore, like Ozzy Osbourne. It literally doesn't affect them. Uh, so the general discussion goes like this. It seems that this chirping is playful, as rats who do it more during tickling seem to be having more fun, and it naturally occurs in play behaviour in young rats. Isolated rats respond more to tickling in terms of the sound and behaviourally, and use the sound as a social signal, and it was possible to selectively breed for this response within four generations, which isn't many. You know, if you were thinking of breeding some super ticklish giggle rats, you know, for the big market out there for animals that love to be tickled, you know farmers constantly working on that so actually these results are apparently quite surprising i think a highly ticklish rat would be a really good pet i think that's that's a really good idea that's marketable yeah i suppose it is um and one of the their peer reviewers pointed out they're described as evocative in the text i think the fact that you address a reviewer at all in your actual text means that you hate them and you've sent them some mk801 laced like food to try and kill them or give them a mental illness so basically isolated rats tend to become irritated rather than social. And humans are really big and scary and shouldn't be seen as a social target for rats. And morphine didn't make them stop, which it really normally does for social behaviour. But Panksepp and Bergdorf respond that the social isolation was mild and there was frequent human contact from an early age, so there's probably some kind of taming effect. And mammals of all sorts show interaction with humans when there aren't members of their own species or similar to hang out with, the racists. They think it was ceiling <laughs> effects that me meant that the drugs didn't have a significant impact. And, of course, when I'm on drugs, I feel like I'm on the ceiling. Wait, no, <laughs> I feel like I'm Dick Van Dyke. 
And they accuse anyone who says it's impossible to study emotion in animals of having unsubstantiated unbelief, an unhelpful scepticism that prevents reasonable work. And they believe that the similarities in mammals of behaviour and neurophysiology that accord then with the reported internal states of humans means that we can safely ascribe emotion in some level to rats. And finally, just as rat chirping can mean either I like this or please do this, so can laughter be used in humans in multiple ways. In other words, rats are just like us. Awesome. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Tickled rats. Well, that was a, a frankly adorable study. Uh, so allow me to swing the pendulum way back in the direction of bleak. Um, and I guess rats are pretty regular appearers on the Psychomedia podcast by being used in all sorts of studies. Uh, and as I'm sure regular listeners of the show will appreciate, no discussion of animal behaviour is complete without mentioning the undisputed titan of theory of mind, the emperor of empathy, the fuhrer of forward planning, quite simply the most badass bird in all of brain and behaviour, ladies, gentlemen, and other arbitrary defined gender categories. I am proud to once again introduce the mafioso of metacognition, Aphelacoma californica, or the Western Scrub Jay. Yeah. West Coast represent. West side. Anyway, yeah. So uh, we all know from previous episodes that scrub jays are highly terrifyingly intelligent. Uh, they've got theory of mind, so they know what you're thinking. They've got object permanence, so you can't hide anything from them. They've got advanced forward planning abilities, so they're always one step ahead of you. In fact, they sound less and less like cute and cuddly corvids and more like a species of Machiavellian crime lords. You know, you combine all of those abilities with their pimpin' blue electric plumage, and you've got yourself a stone-cold gangster bird. Except instead of drugs and hookers, the scrub jay deals solely in pure, uncut, class A pine nuts. <laughs> a lot of drugs in this week's episode. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> if you, if, you if I'd known, I would have prepared appropriately. <laughs> anyway, on to the study in which it is revealed that not only do scrub jays understand metacognition, forward planning, and theory of mind, but they also understand death. Uh, because the paper is titled Western Scrub Jay Funerals, Cacophonous Aggregations in Response to Dead Conspecifics. In wow. Study, yeah, right? In the study, uh, the authors, who presumably have some kind of death wish, decided it would be a good idea to leave dead scrub jays in an enclosure with some very much alive and presumably vengeful other scrub jays to see whether they got upset. This very much follows the literalist approach to research methodology. This can only end brilliantly! <laughs> Spot on. Um, it's also deeply, deeply morbid. You know, setting aside for a moment the inherent danger of es essentially threatening a bird we have already established as a complete baller, the methodology of this study is actually kind of perverse. So I, you know, I, I tried to follow the researchers' thought process, their logic for a moment. You know, I am a researcher and I want to find out how alive scrub jays react to dead scrub jays. I know, I'll kill a scrub jay. Thankfully, I have lots of scrub jays, so that's fine. I'll kill one of them, then leave it in the enclosure and see what happens. Ah, uh, but oh, w wait a minute. I dimly remember from one of the few undergraduate psychology lectures, lectures where I wasn't distracted by endlessly doodling pictures of decerebrated cats and kittens with their eyes sewn shut, something about how experiments should always include a control group. Now, what would a suitable control stimulus be for a dead scrub jay? 
oh, I know. What if I killed another one of the alive scrub jays, skinned it and mounted its skin on a stick so it looked like it was alive? That way, I'd be able to tell if the alive scrub jays were upset because their friend was actually dead or if they were upset just because he was lying down. Come to think of it, think of it, I do already have a lot of dead skinned and stuffed animals cluttering up my office. Maybe I could put that dead stuffed owl in the enclosure too to see whether the alive scrub jays get upset at the sight of a dead skinned stuffed predator. Yeah, I think I think we've got ourselves the making of a study here. Now, I just need to fill in this ethics form. Oh, <laughs> of course not. I'm testing animals. I don't need any ethics form. Now, where's my bird strangling gloves? Um, so <clears throat> I don't I don't want to fall in the same camp as this experimenter. But my first thought was dead magpie. Perfect control group. Similar size, similar species. <laughs> but I guess they don't get along. <laughs> Perhaps not. I really don't know. Although apparently scrub jay, Western scrub jays are closer to Eurasian magpies than they are to other forms of jay. Or possibly it's Eurasian magpies are closer to scrub jays than they are to other forms of magpie. One of those ways round. Um, so they're kind of the sort of cousins who look a little too like each other to be going out. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we're back to Cersei and Jamie. Anyway. Come on. I was again thinking. I'm thinking sort of the rest of the world. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that too. Um... So obviously all, uh, well, hopefully all of the above is just a load of quite, quite libelous fiction. But the fact remains that in this study, they did present the alive scrub jays with a dead scrub jay corpse, a stuffed scrub jay and a stuffed great horned owl. And most horrifyingly of all, a collection of small blue sticks. Um, as for the results... Uh, they found that the birds reacted in a very specific way to the dead jay corpse. Uh, the first bird to find the corpse, corpse would begin what they called a cacophonous reaction, or to put it in layman's terms, freaking the hell out. Uh, this involved hopping agitatedly from perch to perch whilst calling loudly, as one would if one came across a corpse right in the middle of one's feeding area. Uh, this Man, it was the dining room? Oh, no. No, right? It's like unless it's, it's like, like Hannibal Scrub Jay, that's bad <laughs> news. Uh, yeah, it's like finding a tattoo on your steak. Um, <clears throat> so this cacophonous reaction would usually attract the attention of the other jays, who would arrive and join in, creati creating a so-called cacophonous aggregation. They also uh, the jays also reacted the same way when they found, when the stuffed owl was introduced, suggesting that the cacophonous aggregation is a kind of emergency warning signal to all jays to stay away from that area because it's dangerous either because of an owl or because something is mysteriously killing off their friends okay so did the scrub jays think the stuffed owl was alive or dead i don't think they they really discriminated this is where the interpretation level comes in uh, oh, sure. What we do know is that they, after presentation of either the dead jays or the stuffed owls, the level of foraging in activity in that area dropped significantly for at least 24 yeah. hours. So they were they were clearly avoiding that area. Ah, now, when the birds were presented with the stuffed jay, the one that was kind of standing upright, they didn't show the cacophonous aggregation or even the basic, you know, cacophonous. OK. So I guess that's the control there, isn't it, really? Kind of, yeah. So actually what, what they did do is they responded with aggression, which could mean that they didn't realise it was dead. 
Or yeah. it could mean that they finally had enough with all the corpses. I mean, <laughs> constantly being presented with an assortment of morbid trophies, many of whom they probably used to be friends with. That's got to... <laughs> It's got to piss a Jay off. I mean, <laughs> I don't think they saw the stuff Jay as a rival. I think they saw it as a threat. They weren't having a f- kind of a funeral gathering. They were having a council of war and they weren't avoiding the spot because of fear. They were just waiting for the heat to die down. I bet that a week or so later, the supervisor of the research group will have woken up to find the severed head of his prized postdoc in bed next to him. <laughs> Do you feel that happening? Oh, every day. Fast forward a few months and the whole department is under the control of the Jays who demand protection from the scientists in the form of daily rations of pine nuts. And you know what? They deserve it. Scrub life, mother. (laughs) End of study. (laughs) Okay. Do you think they thought it was a zombie Jay? That was my other thought. (laughs) Do, Do scrub Jays, have they reached the level of intelligence when they can have zombie fiction yet? Well, I mean, we always use uh, Jay-Z to represent the kind of gangster attributes of the scrub. <laughs> but it could be uh, Jay-Z. World War scrub Jay-Z. World War scrub Jay-Z. Oh, yeah. Jay of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could be. Who knows? Anyway, grim study. Thought it would be funnier when I started it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't is... think that's a funeral. I think that's an, ah, it's a dead thing. Or, ah, it's an owl. Oh, it's an owl. <laughs> Just, um, yeah, both of both of my studies this week thought they'd be funnier when I started them. You know, monkeys on cocaine, that's funny. No, they get a vascular access port drilled into their spine. And, you know, Jay funerals, that sounds interesting at the very least. No, wait, they just, like an evil scientist, is just throwing the corpses <laughs> of their friends and seeing how they react. Yeah, it's, it is a horror movie, essentially, really, isn't it? Basically. That's the concept. You just change the Jays back to humans. Right, let's let's have a happy, lovey-dovey sort of study about dogs. Woof. A review of domestic dogs, Canis familiaris, human-like behaviours, or why behaviour analysts should stop worrying and love their dogs. So this is by Oodle and Wynne from 2008, and it has a pretty strong command in its title. You don't get many scientific papers that command you to love something or someone. Oodle and Wynne, this study I know is going to be full of oodles of Wynne. I bet they get that all the time. I made a pun. Um, So uh, I'm going to use that a lot. It's almost like an attempt to stop you doing it. (laughs) But you might find it rewarding. It depends on your feelings towards Lucille Bluth, I suppose. Uh, Domestic dogs, they say, have not been as studied as one would expect, given how present they are in our lives. They point out that research into dog behaviour could be helpful both for working dogs and that thin line between man's best friend and bad dog. (laughs) <laughs> Domestic dogs emerged somewhere between 135,000 and 14,000 years ago. The first date comes from biological evidence, the second from evidence of dog burials, showing that we've had a weird attitude towards pets for thousands of years. And that's, they're clearly. Um, burials of dogs, not burials made by dogs in like oh, yeah, prehistoric yeah. gardens. Just had a lot. We of... found a buried bone! It's like you're an archaeologist. <laughs> Come on. We think it uh, might have been a dog. <laughs> Did you study archaeology? (laughs) No, and that's why my name is Indiana Jones. Um, So uh, dogs are clearly an integral part of life. There are 75 million dogs in the USA, and that figure excludes corn dogs. 
So researchers <laughs> <horn dogs>. discovered <laughs> there's only you know a couple of those in the White House these days. Um, so researchers discovered interesting and important things about different dogs bred and trained for different purposes, such as companion dogs being rubbish at rescuing. I really hope they didn't test this during an actual mountain rescue situation, because if I break a leg whilst mountain walking in the Alps and I point out it's mountain walking because I cannot and will never be able to ski. Um, <laughs> I want a St. Bernard's, not a Labradoodle that will come and snuffle at me and look happy. <laughs> On the other hand, certain breeds are seen as intrinsically evil. They quote Malcolm Gladwell, 2006 in The New Yorker, likened the profile of dangerous dog breeds to the racial profiling that has dominated the search for terrorists since September 11th, 2001. Which is sad because I thought he was just a sociologist rather than a guy who hasn't had to face racial discrimination ever in his life. Probably I don't actually know what his Hey, hey, is. hey. Malcolm Gladwell is a mastiff. He knows what it's like. <laughs> the world's first dog sociologist. <laughs> um, anyway, so these guys believe that understanding behaviour is more important than looking at breed, even if breed and behaviour are clearly intrinsically linked. So why are dogs the way they are? Well, they've got a course of evolution that we've influenced, and each individual dog lives in a human society. Some people have a theory, a, a pet theory if you will, suggesting that humans and dogs have experienced convergent evolution. Since by sharing some level of society, they also share the same selective pressures. And that's why dogs and owners look similar. I may not understand evolution. A puppy <laughs> is dependent entirely on humans for its needs. And all of the reinforcers of behaviour come either directly or indirectly from humans. Indeed, some have noticed how similar children and dogs are. Except that children are capable of, in some rare documented cases, becoming independent. <laughs> Similarly, behaviour that fits with the human and shows subservience to it, gets rewarded, like asking for food rather than foraging in the cupboards, uh, or pouring to go out rather than urinating inside the house, or winning a major talent contest for your owner and yet you get the acclaim. Um, dog psychology was an area of... Bitter, Tim. <laughs> I actually have nothing against that woman and her dog who is called Pudsy, but there's already a Pudsy in public life, so it's confusing, especially when that dog then performs at charity events. Um... <laughs> And has but it does seem a bit unfair that she gets like the real like better life out of it because the dog's life was already probably fine um and yet the dog's doing what seems to me like all of the work but hey i i i'm not an expert on dog training yet um so dog psychology was an area of study that darwin was especially interested in and he believed that dogs could have such emotions such as love shame fear and rage and that they dream and they even have some level of reason um Hey, I, dogs definitely dream. Have you not seen that YouTube video of the dog waking up and running into the wall? I probably have. Also, we know that all mammals dream, apart from maybe the echidna. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Darwin didn't have uh, brain scans. Imagine what he could have done if he did. Probably eaten brains. The, the, he loved it eating been, animals. <laughs> it would have been a much heavier ship. <laughs> it would be more God like damn it, Captain, it's hold like... her steady. I can't get can you, get can you an MRI on a ship? Is that not going to cause problems? There's just one very tired crew hand pedaling like mad. It's like faster, Captain, Jenkins, the faster. Captain, the navigation's gone crazy again. I don't understand why yeah. the satellite system isn't working. Oh, God, the, cannons, the cannons got stuck in the MRI again. <laughs> Uh, yeah um do you think it is darwin's fault that beagles got a lot of the research that is done on dogs because they're like oh well, just I, this I don't association 
how he managed to fit all of his equipment onto one small dog. <laughs> well, you know, dogs are, you know, they're very brave. They probably carry more than they can really manage. You've, you've seen a small dog carrying a huge stick before, right? That's really too big for it, but it'll keep trying. It's like that. <laughs> Darwin's neighbour, John Lubbock, taught his dog to use cards with words on to communicate at least some of its needs. But as his work on dog colour recognition and dog number recognition was never published, we can suspect that they probably failed or uncovered a sinister plot where dogs have in fact been the ones controlling us for all of these years. Other than Pavlov, not that many people looked at dogs scientifically until more recently. For example, dogs seem better at generalising actions into gestures than many other animals. They can learn to identify which bowl is the right one to pick from just a head turn or a nod or even a glance. And some of these dogs weren't even members of a human's household, but are instead assistant dogs still in training. And that's the sort of subtle inter social interaction that I struggle with. So how dogs can do it, I have no idea. What I can tell you is that context is important to dogs. If you just look at the command sit and come, if you put the command on tape and then play it whilst the human's there, the dog is less likely to do it. This also decreases if the human is wearing sunglasses. Dogs don't like sunglasses. They believe it's an excuse for perversion and leering. And most dogs are prudes. Uh, if you put the human behind a screen, then the dog only responds to the come command. Because this is the only command that's given whilst the human is distant or out of sight. You don't tend to just shout into another room for the dog to sit. Unless you're just like me and you go around shouting random animal commands in the hope of causing pet chaos. <laughs> Kill. Um, similarly, uh, dogs can. I would never that's, do that. I don't good, like dangerous dogs. They scare me. That would be a good thing to just. I mean, it, it would help if more people had trained their various pets to kill. <laughs> I've been working. You know, having read this study on guinea pig training, and we haven't got to the kill stage yet. Well, unless it's a carrot, <laughs> they'll happily kill a carrot. But. You know. Um, so similarly, dogs can socially cue humans by licking more, making noises, sniffing, looking at the owner and looking at the location of a hidden object. Uh, dogs can also use cues to show things to other dogs. And I suppose that humans can use cues to show things to other humans, but we call that charades. It's amazing <laughs> how many people forget the bonus points for licking in charades. We've <laughs> and life. <laughs> I am actually very anti-licking, as you may not be surprised to hear. <laughs> Uh, we've previously discussed object permanence in terms of children and animals. Dogs are able to learn such things as invisible displacement, where something should be in a container but has fallen out along the way. However, some research suggests that dogs are actually responding to something else in the experiment, some other social cue that is, again, all about the social uh, cues. So theory of mind is a key one that we can think of with our own anecdotal tales of lovable scamps. Dogs instructed not to take food whilst a human is watching often disobey. Uh, if the human eye, human's eyes are closed, if the human's back is turned, if the human is distracted, if the human leaves the room, or if some barrier blocks the human's view of the food and the dog's approach to the food, which suggests they have some idea of what the human knows and can sense, and that they are greedy and devious animals. Similarly, if you do an experimental setup of a blindfolded human versus uh, a human wearing a blindfold on its head but not covering its eyes, and paying attention versus not paying attention, even though dogs always get a treat, they would beg significantly more to the experimenter who was not blindfolded and was attending to them. Of course, these things could just be stimulus response patterns that have been rewarded by success. Uh, that is to say, yummy human food. And of course, you could say that's a philosophical question and that's all we do anyway. Um, individual dogs have shown remarkable abilities to imitate humans. And these include Fido Castro, David Barkham, Rover, the founder of the motor company of the same name, Buddy Holly, Duke of Cumberland, Sausages, and Max <laughs> Imus Decimus Meridius. Um, <laughs> I made a pun. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Made a, 
Good boy. He's a good boy. Well done. He's a good boy. I looked up the top 10 animal names because I, I couldn't think what other dogs were called and I couldn't come up with a good one for Rex. Um, but apparently Buddy and Duke and Max are very popular. Uh, OK, so there's this real Border Collie, uh, officially the best dog breed, by the way, Border Collie, uh, called Rico, who could recognise vocal labels for over 200 items. Uh, he was also able to put novel objects into groups based on these labels. He did, however, need more exposure to new word object pairings than humans do, but still performed impressively on this task. In fact, it says later, more impressively than chimpanzees do. Of course, the key question about Rico is whether he was an exceptional dog or a symbol of what dogs could potentially achieve. Uh, based on how stupid some dogs are, I'm guessing exceptional dog. Uh, different breeds of dogs act know, I mean, differently. Border Collies are generally, I, I believe, generally considered to be one of the most, if not the most, intelligent breed. Did you Were you aware of that? No, I don't really know or care about dogs, but... Um, <laughs> Not me, neither much, but yeah, um, yeah, because that's why. Okay. Uh, but I thought example, it was to do with the, like to... independence and use in herding. Like they have yeah. to do a sequence of tasks and do it in the right order and stuff rather than just like grab stuff and bring it to you. Yeah, I think they are generally considered to be one of the brighter, brighter sorts. Yeah. So maybe all Border Collies could learn 200 words of the human language. Yeah. But as you, you know, the Labradoodles and the Pugs, maybe less so. Yeah. So different breeds of dog do act differently, as we've just discussed. Uh, to help us learn more about these differences, a psychologist called Svartberg developed a personality scale for dogs that gives us six traits. Ah, not five. Boom. Dogs don't have the big um, playfulness, <laughs> chase proneness, curiosity slash fearlessness, sociability, aggressiveness and distance playfulness. However, this personality matrix does not show differences between dogs of different breed or sex. Then again, I don't actually know if we find significant differences between men and women on personality tests, still less on ethnicities, which are admittedly far less pronounced differences than breeds and if the differences are really significant at all on the biological scale. So I had an argument on Twitter with a UKIP activist about how all scientific evidence shows there's no biological basis of race. This UKIP activist then went on later uh, to make the news for calling the family of drummer Lee Rigby idiots for uh, not de for decrying Islamophobia, for not saying the EDL were good. Um, so clearly I was ahead of the curve in calling this guy out. <laughs> Is that the right response? I don't think it's the right response, but uh, it, yeah. It's a, it's a correct response, but it's not the correct response. <laughs> uh, um, necessary, but not sufficient. Um, these authors argue that dogs show better language skills and social recognition than non-human primates. But then again, so do scrub jays. <laughs> Why do dogs do better on some of these human imitation tasks? Uh, puppies and domesticated fox kits do well on such tasks, so it can't just be Aww. human contact. Uh, well, maybe it's because wolves are social, so anything descended from wolves will do well on social tasks. Well, it's a nice idea, except that dogs beat wolves. True in psychology, true in football. Uh, the fox <laughs> kits that were domesticated were selectively bred for low aggressiveness. So even without human contact, there might be helpful traits that have also been bred in. It's a nice theory, but again, why don't other domesticated animals show this? Guinea pigs are highly domesticated, but they have not mastered the flashcards I've left in their living they room are, at all. That is, that is because they are thick as bricks. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently they have the same aerodynamicity. <laughs> it's a very it's apparently term. like they are unique amongst rodents for sinking like a brick when you drop them. So <laughs> don't drop them. Whereas, like, almost all rodents could just kind of land well. 
Um, yeah, this is why I do not try this... and pick up the guinea pigs unless I absolutely have to. <laughs> but cats also do badly. There might be genetic reasons. Even though cats have been selectively bred, they're nowhere near as genetically different from the wild type as dogs are. It would be interesting to compare to another collaborative animal like the horse, but they don't here, unfortunately. Maybe wolves can be socialised to some extent. Evidence has suggested that maybe they can, but there are some limitations compared to dogs. So they use this evidence to suggest that how a dog is trained is more important than its genetics. And thus even scary looking breeds associated with being bred for death are only dangerous if badly trained. And the best predictor for dog offences is the owner. But some breeds of dog do remain disproportionately responsible for the attacks. They claim this is due to flawed statistics, but I say it's denial and a desire to love dogs that are essentially killing machines. (laughs) So, you know, we can't really agree on that. On a final note, they suggest that the general public would be much more interested in behavioural psychology if we talked to them about it using dogs, since people train dogs using behaviourist principles all the time. It's true. Horses too. My mum uses classical conditioning on our horses, and it's been... Classical? Interesting. Well, well, I'm not sure exactly what variant. It's clicker training, so it's, you know, a, an amalgam of various forms. Oh yeah, it's but, a form of operant conditioning where you don't actually use a real reward, isn't it? Oh no, you do use a real reward. You just displace the real reward by one step because it's okay that you need to be able to provide a proxy reward for the behavior as soon as it's done. And if you're riding on the horse, it's difficult. Oh right, to I thought that the like, clicker just substituted most of the time for the actual reward. So it was, but it no, it will always lead to reward later. Is that? It? I, I think it probably depends on who's doing it. I know the way Mum does it. it is it? they learn the association between the clicker and the treat and then when they do something right they get the instant click which tells them that then later they're going to get the treat okay cool it's certainly been very just, effective you know, it it will be sitting in their prefrontal cortex the expected reward and they'll be gutted if they don't get it well yeah this is uh, why human research is then thing to go over quite important to do it properly but you know she's managed to train him to like when he's finished eating his dinner he will pick up his bucket and bring it over to her and like she at one point uh you know she's trained him uh, to give her like a big smoochy kiss or like come under her arm for a hug stuff like that that's weirdly tactile uh, the whole bring the bucket thing there are humans who struggle to get trained to bring their plate <laughs> when they're done eating you know yes so powerful stuff right shall we sum up about animals acting like humans Yes, sometimes it's adorable and fun, and sometimes it's bleak as all hell. Yeah, it turns out it reflects the human condition. Who knew? (laughs) When animals are being tickled, or when they're, you know, jumping around and being your best friend, then they're they're wonderful. Included in your society for thousands of years. But when they're hooked on drugs or having corpses of their friends thrown at them, they tend to get a bit antsy. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't feel we've learnt all that much, but it was a fun (laughs) ride. Um... If you wish to comment on the various abuses of various animal species in this week's episode, or if you've ever been, uh, had a vascular, in, in, what is it? A vascular, I can't remember. If you've ever had any, yeah, if you've ever had your vascular access ported, uh, do contact us uh, on Twitter, uh, Team Psychomedia, at, at Team Psychomedia. Uh, Facebook.com slash Psychomedia, or just search it on uh, Facebook, join the, the fan page, show that you like us. Uh, because just listening is apparently not affirmation enough. <laughs> you should t- uh, absolutely visit the WordPress page, psychomedia.wordpress.com, for the show notes, which will include many wonderful things this week. 
special in the show notes, there will be three videos of animals doing cute and wonderful things. Two of those videos will be of crows because crows are amazing. One okay. of them is a crow, crow surfing down a roof on a piece of plastic repeatedly. One is a crow rolling around in the snow because it's having a wonderful time. And the other is an orangutan stealing a canoe. Right. I saw a baby magpie uh, this week for the first time hopping about. And it is just like it's like a regular magpie, but with like a tiny like child bird head. It was quite weird. It was quite cute. And then I'm like, yeah, magpies are still kind of the, the, the evil side of Corvid still, you know, the whole carrion eating. Ah, they're, they're, they're Lokis. They're, they're, they, they do do bad, but you just can't help but. So learn. essentially I met the bird form of Kid Loki. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, should have been the, more respectful. You may well have met the bird form of Loki because in the Kid Loki comics. He yeah, he's turned Loki. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, you can also, if you've got something long and rambling, much like this show can be, uh, email psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. Um, there's a Google Plus community. There's a Tumblr tag, but no one else tends to use those. But you can. You can. <laughs> I watch that Tumblr tag with anticipation, waiting for the one no, person to post in it who isn't me. If you want, if you want to like send Tim's dopamine set, uh, receptors into overdrive, you could uh, amend the uh, TV tropes page for Psychomedia. Oh, I've forgotten about that. That would please him a great deal. Yeah, because I really can't be bothered to figure out what tropes we're doing um, <laughs> because it's so much effort. Because I know what I'm thinking of in my head, but I can't remember the names. <laughs> You need a useful collie dog that knows 200 names. <laughs> I think there's more than 200 tropes, but it'd be a start. <laughs> Good for a collie dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're very media savvy. Um, until <laughs> until next oh. week, uh, I, a fortnight even, we should probably say uh, goodbye. Scrub life. Peace. Also, bye-bye. <laughs> the following outro contains explicit lyrics. It also contains dangerously awesome beats. yourselves here we go well i heard a disturbing thing just now seems the word on the street is that somehow though i wasn't gone for more than a few shows and yet i missed these poses proposing to depose me as cleverest but i'm back bitch quit the stage take a bow these ridiculous claims i need to disavow i'm reclaiming my throne my crown and my scepter i won't be overthrown it's time that i set the record straight in my favor to all the haters i say this that i get gonna get braver i'm coming out of hiatus employing lyrical flavor as an expression of greatness incontrovertible data to those who question my state my demonstration of skill don't need no reproduction It's my rivals who will need facial reconstruction So you better all order in some high brain function I'm the cortical Corbett King who needs no introduction He may be a J but he ain't no scrub Up in the tree or up in the club See I'm coming but I get out the way Haven't you heard bitch? She's a motherfucking scrub J 
no glyph on the hole is how I mark my cash All I need to control this neighborhood and my stash All the birds in the wood understood and they'd rather Stay away than end up like squires cadavers Cause the path in your garden's a battle line drawn A border war of the hoarders The new world order's arrived So accept my position as the absolute and undisputed king of cognition Dropping beats at the feet of all the haters and cheaters I guarantee all seed eaters are gonna meet with defeat in due time Bitches you asinine, you pitiful passerines Ain't worth a single minute of my valuable time But make no mistake, a single peep and I'll break you So do all the fakers, I say kiss my cloaca If you're having bird problems, I feel bad for you son I got 99 problems, but a finch ain't one He may be a jay, but he ain't no scrub Up in the tree or up in the club See him coming, better get out the way Haven't you heard, bitch? She's a motherfucking scrub jay Now I heard of them primates who try and ape my mindscape That shit makes me irate cause IQ requires a sophisticated brain A little leisure domain, theory of mind I think he'll find out snorting lines of cocaine Yeah, chimp thinks he's pimp cause he drinks from a can That requires a ring pull, man that shit is so simple Cause I ain't taking in, bitch I know that you're dumb Faking intellectual prowess with opposable thumbs Let's see you read some food in a series of tubes That necessitate use of several rods Maybe that will you prove that you're somebody whose brain's somewhat improved over cephalopods and I know your homo sapiens out there are thinking that you're still the best But at the mass extinction I'll be standing defiant Yeah, I'll publish my triumph in the journal of post-apocalyptic neuroscience He may be a jay, but he ain't no scrub Up in the tree or up in the club See him coming, better get out the way Haven't you heard, bitch? She's a motherfucking scrub jay. jay but he ain't no scrub Up in the tree or up in the club See him coming, better get out the way Motherfucking scrub J. Motherfucking scrub J. Sing it. Yeah. That's right. Motherfucking scrub J. Yeah. Smug Benny B. Mini gunshot. Scrub Jay Z. He's back. Scrub life, bird, I'm out.